Thank you for listening to the Alliance Church Podcast. We desire to connect you with God and one another, whether here in Wisconsin or around the world. Let's listen into this week's message. It's a little sneak peek about the passage we're going to talk about at Easter next week. So enjoy that. So when I graduated from college, uh, I, my dad put his hand on my shoulder and he goes, well, son, uh, you're a man now, so you need a car. Uh, you got to quit borrowing your mom's car and your sister's car and my car. You need to buy a car. And I had a job so I could do that, so I could afford a car. And so I went out. It was 2008. I got a um, I, I did a bunch of research, and I got a 2008 Hyundai Elantra, and I still have that car to this day. I am Hyundai's worst nightmare of a customer. I have just destroyed that car, and uh, I think it's got like 260,000 miles on it. But uh, I, when I got it, I was all excited about it. First, you know, new car kind of thing, and the next day after I bought this vehicle, this is really the next day, I'm looking at the internet, kind of researching more of the cool stuff about my car, and turns out they had, someone had done some research around the types of drivers for each vehicle that year. And wouldn't you know it, that the 2008 Hyundai Elantra was the number one car for middle-aged, safety-conscious moms everywhere. <laughs> and then my mom bought one. So, so I had, I mean, she had it, and now I had the same car she did. It just, it was not going in the right direction for my social life at all. And this is a true story. Recently, I just was talking to a dealer just for fun. I was like, how much is this thing worth? You know, it's like 15 years old or whatever. So I'm like telling her, this poor lady, I'm like telling her all the features. I can hear her like click like away on the keyboard, typing everything in over the phone. She's like asking me all these questions. And I'm like, there's a CD player in there. Okay, so make sure you include that. Um, and so she gets to the end, like click, click, click. And she goes, 200 bucks. <laughs> so, that's serious. Like, I was like, you're joking. She's like, no, but it says right here, $200. Your car's worth 200 bucks. So we'll start the bidding today at $100, and um, we'll see how far it goes. This is the Sunday. The global church celebrates the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem in a Hyundai Elantra. Uh, this is the day where he didn't come in in a horse, you know, a noble steed. He came in in a very average donkey. That's how he rode into Jerusalem. And we're celebrating this all over the world. There's, we read some of the passages this morning. Uh, you saw them on the screen, people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And uh, this, is, this is really the kickoff of Holy Week. But what I want to talk about today is what many theologians and scholars would say is the first miracle of Holy Week. I mean, if at the end of it, you know, next Sunday is the miracle of rising from the dead, there's a miracle that kicks off the whole week. Some scholars would debate that maybe riding the donkey was a miracle because any ancient reader would have read that and seen that Jesus just found some random uh, donkey and got on it and rode it as a miracle. These are kind of wild, untamely things. People would ride them, but, but they were hard to ride and they were hard to tame. Um, but most scholars would say the first miracle of Holy Week that kind of kicks off Holy Week happens on Monday, the next day, and it, it, it totally summarizes the previous day, Palm Sunday. So if we're going to talk about Palm Sunday, we ought to ask ourselves, what does the first supernatural event of Monday have to say about Palm Sunday? So I'm going to read the, um, the narrative of Palm Sunday. We're going to go through all of it, 
and, uh, and I'm gonna, we're gonna break it down. But you need to know what happened on this day so that we can look at the miracle and the miraculous thing Jesus does on Monday. So this is Matthew's account in chapter 21 is where it picks off. And I'll start in verse one. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and they'll be fine with it. So just try this, say, just go out into that parking lot, just find the nicest car you can, hop on in, get the mirror adjusted, and if anybody asks, you just tell them, the Lord needs it. And see how that goes for you. And if it's a gray Hyundai Elantra 2008, hop on in and take that sucker. Just get as far away as you can. The insurance will give me 200 bucks for it. Okay. So here we go. Uh, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, which is another name for Israel, see, your king comes to you, gentle. Remember that word. Gentle, riding on a donkey and on a colt in the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very loud crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save us, right? Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts, and these are the big courts that kind of like fit thousands of people, uh, and it's where a lot of people would gather before, you know, the temple. And he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the branches of those selling doves, and the benches, excuse me, of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany where he spent the night. So that's Jesus's Palm Sunday. So the next morning he does this miracle and this is the first miracle. This is the only miracle recorded in the gospels where Jesus uses his supernatural power to do something negative, to destroy and kill directly. It's the only instance in all of the, the, the gospel accounts of Jesus' miracles. In every other instance, he's using his power to bless somebody to enhance something, to redeem, to restore something. This is the only instance where he uses his power directly to kill and destroy something. We ought to ask ourselves, what does this mean? And what does it say about Palm Sunday? This is the big day. This is where everybody's all happy and excited. And why does this, why does the symbol that he, he used, the, 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 the illustration or the, the, the living parable is called, because he actually does this, but it's parabolic. Why, why is it so negative? 
So let's read it. This is it. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. So uh, if you're going to break this passage down, uh, my wife would give you a really, her, she would give you this theological explanation. It would be very clear to her. She doesn't even need a lot of help with it. She'd say, this is Jesus getting hangry. And if you want to know what hangry is, my wife would explain to you, it's when, it's when she gets hungry and everything is my fault. Everything is my fault. Um, but, but that's not what's going on here. Like, let's, let's not reduce, it's not petty. Like, Jesus isn't going to use his power to do that. He doesn't get hangry. That's not what's going on. So what's going on? Let's ask this question. What's wrong with just the leaves? What's wrong with a, a healthy, flourishing fig tree with the leaves? Well, remember, this is a picture of everything Jesus went through. So let's back up. What did he just go through? Well, he just threw out all the money changers and all the people in the temple courts. Why? What's going on there? Well, you have to understand the covenant that God made with his people, the Israelites, the Jews. He said, listen, we're going to be exclusive, okay? Just like a marriage. That's what, you know, we use the term a marriage covenant. Well, God makes a covenant with his people. He says, it's just going to be us, me and the Jews. That's it. It's not Romans, Egyptians, Persians. Nope. I'm going to, I'm going to be in a relationship. We're going to be one. We're going to be a partnership here, a covenant with, I'm going to be with the Jews, just this people group. But here's the thing. You got to get to know me, okay? And God is not only perfectly loving, perfectly, perfectly uh, righteous and holy, but he is also just. He's a perfect, perfectly just God, which means he has to deal with injustice, which means he has to deal with sin. He can't just close his eyes. You know, when, when you see a heinous crime on TV and they can't, they don't know where the perpetrator is, they don't know where the person is that did it wrong, what's the feeling that wells up in you, right? The feeling is we've got to find that person. We've got to bring him to justice, right? That's a good feeling. That's a good thing. And God is perfectly just. The problem is, is we're all, we're all criminals, all of us. Because every time you reduce a human being, the image of God, you do something selfish and reduce that person to a means to an end, or you do any kind of violence against a person, you're selfish towards somebody else. Every time, it's not just to that person. It's to their maker, like, you've offended not just that person, you've offended their creator. They bear the image of God, so you've done violence to the image and the likeness of God. And God just can't do this with it. That's not grace. That's not, that's not mercy. God has to deal with it. The problem is, is he didn't want his people to have to pay the price. It's too high. That kind of crime against a holy and perfect God, that is too high of a price. So here's what God did. He said, okay, I'm going to make a way. I'm going to make a substitute. I'm going to create a substitute. You know, most of the time when we read the Bible as Christians, we think the Old Testament is somehow salvation by works and the New Testament is salvation by faith. No, no, it's faith on both sides. Because what God was saying was, he was saying, listen, you put your faith in my plan, my process that I'm going to put in place. You are, your, your relationship with me, your cov the covenant with me is going to be lived out and enhanced by your faith in my provision. And I provided a system. It's called the sacrificial system, where you bring your, your first fruits, your lamb, your goat, 
and it actually, Leviticus, it's very specific. You put your hand on the lamb, you put your hand on the goat, and your sin, your guilt is transferred. And by faith, you believe that somehow this goat, God has made a way for this goat, this physical thing, to deal with my spiritual problem. And so you put your faith in God through that, the system he provides, and then you bring that goat to the altar, and that goat pays, that, that lamb, that sacrifice play, pays the price for your sin. Here's what's going on at Passover in the temple courts with the money changers. Most people are descending upon, Israel, upon Jerusalem from all over Israel. And you know what doesn't travel great? A goat. You ever tried to walk a hundred miles with a goat? Good luck. It is just a gnarly thing. It's gonna run around and get away. Sheep, right? They're always wandering. Sheep are always wandering. So, or they're getting eaten by wolves. So what most people did is they actually sold their best lamb. They sold their best goat. They sold it in their hometown, took the money and brought the money to Israel, to Jerusalem and went to the money changers and bought a lamb, bought a goat, bought a, a dove, bought what they needed to make their sacrifice. That's actually okay. That's not evil. So what's Jesus all upset about? It's not just what's on the outside, what's going on. You can't just look at the outside. It's the heart behind it. What does Jesus say? He calls them robbers. Well, they were price gouging. And more than that, the heart of those vendors and merchants, the heart of the whole thing was to profit, to build a living on the sacred substitutionary sacrificial system that God Almighty had created so that his people could enjoy this relationship, could be in this covenant and be made right with their creator, God Almighty. That the, the purpose of that whole thing was not so that they could have a livelihood, not so that some people could make a profit in that fiscal quarter. That that's not what it's for. These people had bastardized or reduced it to something so shameful and disgusting, it's, it deserved to be overthrown. But here's the problem. On the outside, on the surface, what do you see when you walk in those temple courts? Everyone's all happy. They're bringing in their animals. They're, they're buying their animals. They're going to make their sacrifices. It's a whole bunch of religious activity. It looks like flourishing, but it's fruitless in the eyes of God. Why? Because when you get below the surface, the motive is disgusting. But on the outside, it looks like a great worship service. Hands raised, everyone's all excited. So what does this have to say about what happened just prior to that event? The triumphal entry, Jesus comes in and, and a donkey, everyone's excited, there's Hosanna, people singing, there's palm trees being laid down. What's, what's so bad about that? Well, what's happening right there in that moment, as Jesus is coming in, riding on the donkey, there are two crowds. There's two crowds. The first crowd is the Pharisees, and they're resentful. They're indignant, right? They don't like Jesus. Why? Because he's taking something from them. He's taking their power, their authority, their top of the pecking order kind of status. Because what Jesus' message has been is he goes, I'm at the top, and everybody's a criminal, right? That's the theology Jesus is teaching. Every one of us are sinners. We all fall short. Everybody's a criminal. And the Pharisees don't like that because they have built a system of control where if you do enough good works, you get to the top. You have power, you have influence, you've got, you've got the highest, uh, you're on the top of the, of the food chain. And he's taking that power from them. But there's a second group of people in the audience. These are the people with the palm branches or the, the trees, tops of the trees laying down. Every ancient Jew and reader, 
that would have read that scene where Jesus is riding in and there's palm trees and or trees being cut and they laid down at his feet. Every ancient Jew, every ancient reader with even a little working knowledge of their own history would have thought to themselves about what they did with the other religious leaders, the other leaders that came in where they did that. Just 200 years earlier, Maccabees had come through, this Jewish leader who had briefly liberated Jerusalem from the Roman oppression. And what did they do? Same thing, branches down. And what was everybody really thinking in their mind as they're worshiping and saying, save us, save us, Jesus? What are they really thinking about? They're not thinking about their sin. They're not thinking about their wickedness and their, their standing before God Almighty. No, they're, they're thinking about the Romans, just the same way they were when Maccabees was coming through and they were laying down palm trees at his feet. They were thinking about liberation, getting their man in office, the political freedom, being able to have their, their personal freedoms back and being able to be the rightful dictators of their own future as the Jews. Get rid of the Romans, put us at the top of the food chain in the region. That's what they're thinking Jesus is going to do. And this is why in Luke's account, Jesus steps back, he sees Jerusalem and he weeps. I mean, everybody's cheering. Everyone's excited. It's Palm Sunday. And Jesus is grieving it. It breaks his heart because there's something particularly nefarious about that. Something particularly nefarious when it looks like worship, when it looks like religious activity, but it just leaves. Why? Because it's coming from a bad root. There's no fruit if it's coming from a bad root. Let me put it to you this way, okay? A couple weekends ago, my wife, uh, Hannah, had come home from women's retreat. And as um, maybe a lot of the couple, the women's retreats, an event, once a year, all the women in our church, a lot of them go away for a weekend and they hear from a, a good teacher. And then maybe like a lot of the husbands, um, we just survive. It's like zombie apocalypse weekend for us. And so just imagine, okay, Hannah's coming home. She's riding in on her noble steed, her Toyota Highlander, and she's coming in and we're out on the road that leads to her house. And my kids are there singing Hosanna to mommy in the highest. And there's palm trees being cut and laid down at her feet as she walks in. Mommy's home to liberate us from the oppression of this evil man who makes us eat dad's stew, whatever that even is. You know, and, and we'll, <laughs> we'll finally wash our clothes <laughs> and know where the little pieces to our toys are that he has no idea where they are. Like, finally, liberate us, save us, mommy. Hosanna, right? I mean, let's ask the question, are they glad mom's home? Because they love mom. She's just beautiful and wonderful in who she is. Or do they love mom's home? Because now we're gonna restore order in the kingdom. Let me ask you this, guys, if you're married, your, your wife, okay, if your wife asks you, honey, why do you love me? Think for a second, just stop, think before you answer that. Don't rush into that one. Stop, think. Not too long though, there's a sweet spot in there. Okay, not too long. But if your answer is anything like, you do so much for us, as in that you take good care of the kids, you cook, you clean, you're hot, whatever it is. None of those are going to give you a, a place to sleep in your own bed. 
None of those. Why? Because it's, it's about really what she can do for you, which really is you don't love her, you love you, right? You love you for you and what she does for you. It's so subtle. Like, I know that. Like, I know what I'm talking about right, right now is this kind of nuanced, poetic. We're talking about motives. We're talking about heart, which is what God looks at. It's so easy to look at the outside. It's so easy for all of Israel to look back and they see the sacrifices. Everybody's buying sacrifices and there's celebration in the streets and palm trees. And God looks through all of it and weeps. Because here's what we know. True love, true worship is when you get more pleasure out of giving the other person joy or the other, you know, giving God joy, even if it costs you, even if it hurts, right? You do crazy things when you're love. Even if it hurts, you'll drive hundreds of miles. You'll do whatever because you love that person. You don't care what it costs you because you love giving them joy rather than what you get from them. And as Jesus looked and surveyed everything, it was just leaves. So what's wrong with the fig leaves? There's no fruit. So the question is, what does real fruit look like? How do we describe real fruit in Scripture? Well, we're going to skip ahead just briefly to a passage in Galatians chapter 5. Paul gives us a really good brief summary of what the nature of fruit is like and where it comes from. So this is Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit, a fruit that comes from the root of God, the Spirit, that will satisfy the hunger of God. I mean, Jesus, Son of God, He's hungry. So what's going to satisfy the hunger of God? It's got to be God food, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against none of these things, there's a law. But, but here's what Paul's saying. These are all activities. These could be activities, but they have more to do with your motivations, and they have more to do with affections. And if we're honest, the most important word in that whole thing is the word Spirit. It's the root change. Uh, let me describe it like this. Uh, rather than going out and trying to make a list of those and see how many of those you check off each day, it's more about like where are they coming from? Where's the root of those things? Uh, a missionary years ago um, was telling me a story of how he would bring people from the Amazon jungle, from third world countries, places that like, you know, these people have not even been around technology, cars, they haven't even seen this stuff. And he'd bring them to America and he'd put them in a hotel room. And the first time he did this, the next morning he comes into the hotel room and what these, these people had done, and these are, they're good people. They're actually pastors, and they were going to help him do ministry here. But as they're preparing for the day, they're getting ready for the day, um, he comes into the hotel, and they have totally dismantled the faucet and the sink and all the plumbing underneath. <laughs> and he was confused. He's like, did it break? Did something go wrong with this thing? Like, what did you take it apart for? And as he's talking to him, he realized that, no, they were just preparing for the day they're going to leave the hotel room. They're going to go out and do, do ministry and do things with this pastor. And they just wanted to know that if they got thirsty, they could have some water. So in their minds, this faucet thing is where the water comes from. So if I can just take this thing, put it in my pocket and take it with me, I can have water. <laughs> do you see the logic? It makes perfect sense when you think of it like that. But in the same way that you and I don't run to Menards and buy a faucet in case we're thirsty, is what we'll do with that list of goodness, forbearance, love, kindness. We'll do, we'll do all these things, right? We'll try to make a list of these things. Like we're taking the faucet expecting to get water. But the real problem is, is we got to be hooked up to a whole different plumbing. There's got to be a whole different, underneath there has to be a total replumbing 
of who we are and get the right water from the right source and the right tree with the right roots to get the right fruit that can satisfy God Almighty. That has to happen. That's the problem. And that's how we bear fruit. So what is real fruit? Well, it's spirit-filled. It's a spiritual thing. And again, if this sounds spiritual to you, if this doesn't sound like a good TED Talk or a self-help video, I'm happy with it. I'm good with it. Well, you're at church, okay? So the answer to your problems is something much deeper than just making a list of those fruit and trying to barnacle them onto your tree. It's a root change. You need a spirit-filled heart. And yeah, there'll be acts of righteousness, but the real problem is a new heart, new roots. How do we bear it? How do we get that? Well, the next verse actually hints at it in Galatians chapter, chapter five. The next verse hints at it. This is Paul again. Those who belong to Christ, there's been a killing. Something has died. It's that radical. It's not an improvement. It's not a philosophical shift in your thinking. Something has to be crucified. And it's your flesh with your passions and desires. You know what that means? Desires will go unmet. Passions will go unmet. You know, sometimes people say, I never say no to my instincts and what I want. That may be your problem. They have to die. They have to go. Because now, since we live by the Spirit, we keep in step with the Spirit. And guess what happens? Fruit. You know, Jesus actually basically says something very similar. It's a lot more subtle. And the reason it's more subtle in this passage is because of the disciples. <laughs> the disciples, they ask, they're normal people. So they're like me, right? The disciples are very normal. And, and the disciples ask a, a dumb question, because that's what I would ask. And the question that, that they ask when they see Jesus do this is they ask, how'd you do that? How'd you do that magic trick? That's what they ask. What they should have been asking, what a mature person would ask, is they would ask, Jesus, you know, what is the spiritual significance of what you just did? That's a mature question to ask. That's what pastors ask when they look at the text and they try to understand what it means. They're asking, what is the spiritual significance of what Jesus just did? But that's not the disciples. <laughs> the disciples go, how'd you do that one? And so Jesus actually answers that question, but he gives us a hint as to the spiritual significance of what he just did. And this is how he responds. He says, truly, at, at the disciples saw this. They were amazed. How would you do it? How did the fig tree wither so quickly? Right? That's the question they ask is how. Jesus replies, truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, Jesus basically tells him how, right? But he leaves us a hint and a clue to a lot of what Paul was just saying. See, the, the key phrase there is when Jesus says, truly I tell you, this is the, and whenever you see that, it's a big deal. If you have faith, faith, faith is how this happens. Well, the, the question is, is faith in who? Like faith in in your ability, faith in your religious works to pray and change the mind of God because you're so morally good, because you've done all the right things, because you've gone to enough church, because you've done enough Bible studies, you memorize enough of the Bible? Is it faith in your ability to change the mind of God with your fervor and your prayers? Is that what your faith is in? Is your faith in the size of your faith and your ability to have faith? Is that what's in? Or is your faith entirely 
God, to be God. You see, to do that, to put your faith and to put my faith, for me to do that, to put my faith in God, that's the biggest mountain we'll ever move in our lives. That's the biggest mountain. So how do you bear, how do you bear fruit? How do you bear this kind of fruit? You have to have faith in Christ, in Christ, in God, to be God and king, not counselor, not advisor, not butler, not just getting you what you want, not just telling you what he thinks and then you deciding if you believe it or if it makes sense to you or if it's the way that you would do it if you were God. Nope, it's putting your faith in God to be God, to move the mountains in your life. And that alone is a mountain. People will not, people believe there's a God, they just don't trust him with their lives. Not with the kind of surrender where you just basically say, God, whatever you care about, I will care about. Whatever you tell me to do before I even know what it is, I'm already, I've already said yes. Why? Because you're God. I don't get to say no. I don't get to say no to God. My faith is in you as God. I'm not God. If I get to say no, guess what? I'm still God. If I wanna have this relationship with God where I trust him to tell me things, but then I get to decide if I'm gonna do it or not, then I'm still God. And I'm putting my faith in myself to be God. And that is a mountain that, that's impossible to move unless the cross. I mean, this is what God came to do, to show you how much you can trust him with your life. He was willing to give up his, so you can trust him with yours. This is why Jesus rides into your life gently on a donkey, humbly. He doesn't kick down the door, he stands at the door and knocks and waits for you to open it. You gotta open it, why? Because he's gentle, because he's humble, and then he goes to the cross to show you how much you can trust him. And it's only the cross that can move the mountain in your life, which is letting go and surrendering. And when you surrender, it is only because your eyes are opened. God has opened your eyes to his love for you. You know, scholars debate why of all the centuries of human history, of all the myriad of ways a person could die, why did God, who has sovereign ability to choose, choose to come? and to die on the capital punishment of a cross. Why that? Of all the ones, why that one? Well, they don't really have an answer, but one theologian speculates that maybe it's because it's the only form of capital punishment where God can die with his arms open. Where he just says, come on, Come on, you can trust me. You can give it to me. You can come all the way in. I will forgive it all. I will take it all. It's the only one where his arms are all the way open. And it's until you see that, that right there, when you realize that's for you, and not just for nebulous people out there, it's actually for you. That's where the mountain can get moved. That's where God can do the God-sized work of loosening your grip on your life. And you can put your faith in Jesus when your eyes are opened to the size of God's love. Now, I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up because we're gonna dwell on this for a few minutes before we close today. We need to let this simmer. You need to chew on this one for a little bit. But there is one more. There's one more picture that this fig tree is pointing to. And it's one more picture of how much you can trust God with your life. 
And it goes all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter three is where the fig tree is mentioned all the way in the beginning. And it's this moment where Adam and Eve, they do the one thing God told them not to do. Don't eat from this one tree and they do it anyway. And there's a fig tree involved. And this is how it, this is how it, it goes. This is Genesis chapter three, verse six. The woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful. Its fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit, she ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And then look at this. Mo that moment their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame. And they sewed some fig leaves together. You see, at that moment, their eyes were opened maybe to the caring about how they look and what they think about how they look, but their eyes were shut as how God sees them and how much love he has for them and how beautifully and wonderfully made they are. And their eyes were shut for that. And the cross is God opening your eyes again, opening your eyes to how valuable you are to him. You're that valuable to him. That's how much he loves you. And the cross is God opening your eyes to see that for the first time and to see that he sees it all. He knows it all. He knows the secrets. He knows the sin and he loves you anyway. So you can get rid of those fig leaves. Because if we're honest, most of our fig leaves are these religious activity, going to church, reading the Bible, trying to do all the right things that are good things. But the reason, deeper, deeper, the root, the reason we're doing them is because we're really trying to cover over stuff we're ashamed about. We're trying to cover over stuff. We're trying to fix ourselves. We're trying to put fruit on an empty tree. And then we're frustrated because why? We know it's not coming from the root. You know, this is why we do fig leaf stuff. This is why we do religious activity on our own without the Spirit bringing it about in our lives. The reason we do it is because if we're honest, we're ashamed. We're trying to cover stuff. And you know what shame does? Shame tells you you don't belong. So what do we do to try to belong? All kinds of stuff, fig leaves. And Easter is about Jesus cursing that tree, cursing that fig tree cursing those fig leaves, killing that thing, letting that thing wither because you don't need it anymore because you see yourself how God sees you, loved, forgiven because of your faith in Christ. That mountain gets moved. Let's stand for closing worship and stand as you're able. I'm gonna pray that this, this simmers in our heart a little bit. This does some work in us over the next couple of minutes that God would open our eyes. Heavenly Father, um, it's not much, it's just a song. It's about how you brought death to death. You arrested death, but Lord, you did more than that. You, you took our shame away from us. You cursed the fig tree. We don't need it anymore. We don't need to just be doing religious works anymore to try to cover our, our regrets, to try to cover the mess. Lord, you love us, you forgive us, you bring us all the way in. And so Lord, we confess that our faith is in you to not only make us right, but our faith is in you, our trust is in you, Lord. Tell us how we really are. We say yes to you before we know what it is. Lord, I just pray you'd loosen the grip of everybody in this room that's holding on to their own will and their own leadership. Lord, we surrender to you because we can trust you, because you love us, because you're the king that rides in on a donkey. 
Hosanna, save us, Jesus. Save us from what really matters. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.